welcome to Old Timey Crimey Presents The Murders on Lover's Lane. Ooh. More people in cars going down dark roads. Dark, <laughs> dark roads. And the things that happen when they go down them is uh, basically what this podcast is about now. <laughs> Actually, I think it's really... Uh, I'm Christy. Oh, I'm Amber. <laughs> we should do that. Should do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if I guess we should do all the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you are enjoying this podcast and you want to get these episodes five days early, you can come over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. You get the early episodes and you also get our bonus episodes. We talk about some crazy crimes. And we break all the rules over there. We do. Oh my gosh. Our next bonus episode that we record, Amber, it's 1954. <gasps> yes! <laughs> the pearls, they are being clutched. So yeah, you can come on over to there. You can listen to a sample of the episodes. You can do a seven-day free trial and just see if you like it. Yeah, no commitment. And there's tons and tons of episodes there. So come on over and check that out. And that's really all of my, um, well, as I always used to say, that's all my bullshit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I was really thinking about these cases, especially as I started to dig into the couple that we're going to be talking about this week. About how uncomfortable car sex is? Me too. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was thinking more how it's, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things that I should have seen coming, but I didn't. How we've gotten to know these couples so much. And it's weird because it's not the dynamic that we normally have over on Old Timey Crimey where it's different cases every week and a different scenario, different time periods. No, we're settled into one summer, August of 1925 at the moment at least. And we're looking at all of these individual couples, but they're so different. They're so very different. We've got the, the adorable like first puppy love, you know, <laughs> of our first episodes. and then. The more tawdry visit to Illinois. Yeah, maybe somebody was married and not to the person they were in the car with. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And uh, and then we just had, you know, like four people who literally pretty much just met each other and some siblings and, you know, just a, almost a, a random assortment of people. Went on a picnic, right? Yeah, yeah. And it just... Picnic gone wrong. <laughs> we haven't been able to get to know everyone very well. Because some, especially the, the Denver one, I felt like um, there wasn't a lot of background on some of some of those main players in the case. But I really felt like I got to know the couple here because they have been through some shit. Oh, my God, have they? And I actually was thinking about that as like the reason they probably were starting to become a couple is because they've had some really similar bad experiences. And grief can bring people together. Yeah, very, very similar. It's really strange reading their stories. Yes. And I am not surprised at all that they are, as the, the newspapers put it, drawn together. Yeah, right? So we're going to be talking about a couple in Hastings, Nebraska in 1925. Um, the population there was about 11,600 in 1920. And it would actually jump up to about 15.5 at the next census. So that it's still kind of growing, booming a little bit. That's a decent increase. And so we were talking about Clarence Yeager. 
Now, he was born in 1892, and he is the eldest. A brother and two sisters came after that. And he was a baker. Baker. Not a candlestick maker. (laughs) Yes. He managed a bakery, and he came by it honestly from his father, who was a baker as well, had emigrated from Germany in the 1870s and started up uh, the Jaeger's Bakery. And uh, his mother, Clarence's mother, was from Missouri. So we're still continuing to rock that children of immigrants theme. Mm -hmm. At least halfway. I really liked that we have someone here who's in a business, in a local business. Because you get to see a little bit more of their life through the newspapers and through the records that are available. Even just small little bits, you can see like classified ads in the Hastings Daily Tribune for the bakery's products. Health bread. Order Jaeger's health bread and fruitcake for that Christmas dinner. They are superior to all others. There is no such thing as superior fruitcake. <laughs> There's only just fruitcake. And nobody is happy about it. Like... Nobody. Ever. <laughs> I do have to say one thing that, that happened as I was looking for information about, you know, the bakery and such, as I did find a little bit of crime that had happened in the apartments above it, which I'm not clear on who owned those and was renting them out. But in 1906, so before, you know, Clarence was an adult, he was a child. Mrs. Thomas McIntyre, alias Mrs. Lulu Hull, was arrested and tried in police court yesterday on a charge of running a house of prostitution. The charge being filed by city attorney Button. She pleaded not guilty and was fined $15 in costs. The woman has lived here about two weeks. She roomed in the Jacob Fisher building on 2nd Street over the Jaeger Bakery. Her husband, she stated, is a traveling man of an Omaha brewing company. Gus Hansen, a former employee of a carnival company, complained that he had left $3 at the woman's room but had been forced to withdraw hastily on account of the sudden arrival of the woman's husband. Hmm. (laughs) You know what, though? So Clarence would have not been exactly a child. He would have been like 13, 14. Yeah. So he might have been aware of of some shenanigans going on upstairs. Saw his first boob. (laughs) Maybe not that much. But I don't know if the Yeagers... They might have rented that building out as well. They might have rented their space and just had nothing to do with whatever, you know, was going on upstairs. So oh, I'm, no sure, I'm sure they weren't, like, helping to fund it. Yeah, <laughs> they weren't running the scheduling for her. They're downstairs baking croissants. Yes. And the ladies upstairs are doing other things. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so he married... That is Clarence, our Clarence, uh, Hazel B. Robinson in September 1913. They had both been in the same class at school and graduated a few years prior. I found a notice of her playing basketball while at school back in the days when basketball was two separate words. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, Her mother was a doctor. And that whole generation of her family was accomplished. Her aunt was an optometrist and her uncle a lawyer. There you go. So crazy, crazy. Married um, into a good family. Yeah. And uh, Hazel herself had gone to... Now, we're going to have two Hazels, so this is the first Hazel, just keeping in mind. Hazel the first. Hazel the first had gone to University of Nebraska for two years and had been uh, a member of the Alpha... How do you do it when it's Alpha XI? How do you pronounce that? Xi? Yeah, maybe. Xi. Alpha Xi Delta. Delta. She was a member of a sorority. (laughs) 
I was not part of the Greek life. I'm sorry. Nor was I. I went to one sort of introductory party and then I was like, this is not the life for me. And that's fine if it's the life for some people. It just was not the life for me. So, but yes, yeah, so she was in the sorority and Clarence was a student at Hastings College, like preparing to take over the business. You know, he's the eldest son. Now, we don't know what Hazel studied, but in their engagement announcement, it said that the three-course luncheon she prepared for the guests was online suggested an instruction received in the domestic science department at the University of Nebraska. So I'm assuming she was actually going to college for domestic science. Or maybe they just automatically included that because they just assumed you're going to need to know how to cook things because you're... Like, you uh, have a vagina. You got a vagina. Yeah. Obviously... You need to know how to cook, iron, mend, darn, knit, I don't know. Yes, you need to do all of those things. And uh, hand-make doilies, because they used handmade doilies on the table, so I'm assuming that <laughs> she was possibly part of that. You know what, though? Like, I have, I have like, great-grandparents that used to do that, and uh, my great-grandmas would, would hand-make doilies, and, like, every holiday you would get another doily. <laughs> that was, like, the thing. What? And, they were very well done. But what did anybody expect you to do with them? What do you do with a doily? You put them under the lamps. That's what I know. If you put have a lamp, lamps. you put the doily under the lamp. Okay. No, I've seen that. I've seen that. All right. How many lamps can you possibly have? Well, you need to buy more. <laughs> I guess so. Well, I do like buying lamps, so. Uh, it's a weird thing. I like lighting. It's strange. I love lamp. I love lamp. I do love lamp, though. <laughs> I really do. All right, so Clarence and Hazel I had two children, Hazel Virginia in 1915 and Betty Amaryllis in 1920, 1919, somewhere around there. Now, Betty actually died suddenly at the age of three years, four months, and seven days old, as the newspaper actually tells us. They, they break down the dates on January 1st, 1923. Now... It's never really clear what caused the death. Yeah, welcome to the new year. Yeah, oh my goodness. What a way to start off a year. Uh, there was one report of acute indigestion, which I don't think can really be a cause of death, but anyhow. And uh, one account said that she had been sick for a little over a day, and then on New Year's Day she woke up from a sound sleep in convulsions, and ten minutes later she was gone. And these are very, this is a very beloved family of the community. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know how people actually really felt about them because all we get is the, the newspaper stories. Yeah, and of course, anytime anybody dies, they were a beloved member of the community. Of course, of um, course. But if you, they get a newspaper article or it's just not talked about. But you just feel like with them having that small business and then Clarence going on to marry, you know, the doctor's daughter and everything... It just feels like these are very much fixtures. You know, these families are fixtures. Yeah. Which is really impressive considering second generation, you know? His dad came over here and established himself, you know, in a community, which is, that's really cool. Yeah, that's pretty baller. Yeah. So, uh, Hazel then went into a deep depression. She was suffering from melancholy. Melancholy. Yes, of course. And... So they sent her to Lincoln, Nebraska, for a month for treatment in the fall. And she came back, seemed to be doing great. That's what everybody said. 
then an article about it describes how, you know, she'd shown signs of improvement. She returned home on a Sunday. There was some card playing, a fun evening. And then the next day she took her daughter to school, came home, and then later her body was found hanging in the garage. I found it very interesting that within a year of her death, Hazel's mother had given up her private practice and taken up a position on another medical staff and was said to have recently made a special study of nervous disorders. So that kind of... Prompted her to start looking into mental health. Exactly, yeah. That is where Clarence essentially is in his life. He's in 1925. He's suffered this grievous loss and then another grievous loss in just like nine months. Yeah, I think he, it was, he lost or, his daughter and he lost his wife. Yes, and, you know, he's working in his parents' bakery, he's doing all that, but that's kind of, he's definitely still coming back from that, I assume. One would have to be. Yeah, well, and at the same time, like, he can't stop moving, because he has another daughter to worry about. Yeah. She was, what, eight, nine? Eight or nine, yeah. Um, depending on the article. So, like, he has to keep going for his daughter. He still has to provide for her. He can't just stop, yeah. because he has more than himself to worry about. Exactly. Somebody else who had more than herself to worry about eventually was Hazel Bird. So that's right, we have another Hazel. Now, Hazel was born Hazel Harder uh, in 1896 and then would eventually become Hazel Bird, which is just a lovely little name. It sounds very Disney. Hazel Lucinda Harder Bird. Yes. She was raised on a farm a few miles outside of Hastings. And so she graduated in a class of three in 1913. Could you imagine a class of three? Oh, the world's goodness. smallest high school reunion. <laughs> right? And she was a teacher for a little bit after graduating. Uh, she started in the western part of the state and then returned home to teach there. And then August 21st of 1917, she married Lawrence Bird. He was a plasterer. She'd known him from school, and they'd, as the newspapers put it, gone together on and off for a few years, about four years, actually. It was kind of interesting tracking him and her through the newspapers because they would still show up in little social items together. It would be like, you know, Hazel Harder and Lawrence Bird have returned to, you know, spend a week at Hazel's parents' house, something like that. It was just kind of like, okay... They're, they're definitely kind of acting like they're a couple. They're traveling together, you know. They're definitely acting like they're, in those days, married. Yeah. So it was interesting that it, that went on for a while before they actually got married. Uh, they had a child together in 1918. And much like the Clarence Yeager family, they lost a child young. Little Ruth Tessabel Bird. I have never heard the name Tessabel, but I like it. I like it, too. It has, it has resonance and also a bit of whimsy. Uh, she died of scarlet fever in 1921. She was two years, four months, and 11 days. And they did end up having another child. Uh, they also named him Lawrence after his father, but they called him Robert or Bobby, and I hate doing conception math with dead people, but I do it. And sometimes I come up with something like uh, nine months after they lost their little Ruth, Bobby was born. Um, so either she was pregnant at the start, 
pregnant when she lost her child, which is just, oof. She probably found out the two things very close to each other. Amber is also doing the conception math. Uh, it's a, about a month after they lost their child. Yeah, depending on, of course, like whether the baby was early or anything like that. So yeah, not, not I, I hate doing that, but I can't help myself doing the math. I just always do. <laughs> yeah, it, that is really close. And I, I don't even think it was, like, it was probably not, like, deliberate or planned. But, I mean, back then there wasn't a whole lot of contraception. Yeah. So it was, it was like, maybe comforting each other, a back rub... Something like that, and then like, oopsies. Yeah, I mean, we we, we have no way of, of knowing like what happened there. Frankly, um, I, I think any time you uh, would find it inconvenient to get pregnant, that's when you're most likely to get pregnant. We should call that Amber's Law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the summer of 1925, the birds had actually been divorced for just shy of a year. So Hazel Bird and Lawrence divorced. The reason given was that, quote, he had failed to make a living for herself and their son for some time. And at this he point... He broke. He broke. <laughs> Last heard, Lawrence was in California, probably around Los Angeles, where he'd gotten work as a plasterer. He was out there, <laughs> and he was working. He was not sending her money. So she started teaching again. She was placed at a school outside of town, so she had to board out there during the school year. And their their son, Bobby, stayed with Hazel's parents in Hastings. She would visit. It was like 10, 15 miles away. So she could still visit, you know, like after school or something like that and come and stay on the weekends. But for all intents and purposes, really, during the school year, Bobby lived with his grandparents. And during the summer, you know, like Hazel lived with them, too. As a matter of fact, she lived with them and shared her room with the boarder. Over the summer, Miss Ella Pate. How weird would that be, renting a room and then having a bedmate that came with the room? It would be strange renting a room and having not only that, but having it be like a member of the family. So you'd very much feel like e- e- an even outsider. More, yeah, and like you're <laughs> encroaching even more than in, in that situation. You would feel a certain natural amount of encroaching if you're living with a family. But if you're living with a family and sleeping in the same room as one of the family members... Yeah, it definitely feels like I am too far into this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to learn way too much about these people. <laughs> and they're going to learn way too much about me. So she had a strange conversation that Ella Pate later recounted that I couldn't quite parse. Uh, I'm not sure if it's because of what uh, Ella said or because I think the journalist for the... Hastings Daily Tribune has some issues with timelines and verb tenses. So, but here it is. Miss Ella Pate said today that about two months ago, Mrs. Bird talked to her freely about her former husband, Lawrence Bird. She told me, Miss Pate said, that at a previous time after they were divorced, she had lain awake nights, scared to death of her husband. She didn't tell me what she was afraid of when I asked her, but said that the truth was that she still cared for her husband and was afraid that if he came back, they would have it all to go over with again. By that, Miss Pate took her to mean that her husband might influence her to remarry him, and then the trouble like that which led to the divorce might have to be gone through with a second time. Miss Pate did not understand that Mrs. Bird was afraid of her husband at the time they were married. 
So it does seem like maybe there was some violence in the marriage, but it's all kind of hazy and murky because I think of the combination of Ella Pate and our writer being unclear here. <laughs> I don't think the writer knew what was being inferred. I'm not sure that, uh, that Ella knew what was... Ella? Yeah, Ella. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that Ella knew quite what was being inferred, but maybe that something was being inferred. And I think it just goes back to our second Hazel not being completely upfront about what was happening when they were married. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, th th this doesn't seem to be something that was public knowledge, and it seems to be there, there's a little bit of skirting around it. Well, and especially if she still had some sort of feeling for him, even if it's like Stockholm Syndrome kind of feeling, um, she wouldn't want to say outright, he hits, mm -hmm. but, oh, he wasn't providing for us, that's why I left, and don't I mind these scars. And saying, like, I was afraid of him is enough of a euphemism and enough of a big umbrella that it could cover some of the things that are a little easier to swallow, you know, mm -hmm. than, you know, if he's giving her black eyes. So, and then another friend of hers who is named in the papers only as Mrs. Dick Golgert, which is just, yeah, that's a name you have to snort after. Uh, she said that Hazel got letters from Lawrence occasionally. He would tell her he could make a good home for her in California if she just came out, but he had not offered any money towards that endeavor. And Mrs. Golgert said that she thought Hazel was afraid of Lawrence. Hazel's mother said that she'd gotten letters from Lawrence. Hazel had. But Lawrence had certainly not been there in over a year. Definitely the, the divorce seems permanent. While she's on summer break, she's working at the Jaeger Bakery, which is where she, I don't know if she met Clarence there or if she already knew him. It's a small-ish town, but like I told you, I mean, it was close to 12,000 residents. That's not a tiny town. It's not a village, you know? Yeah, it's not a village, but it's also, it's small enough that, I mean, graduating class of three, you probably did at least kind of know people, especially business owners. Yeah, if they didn't know each other, they definitely knew of each other. And so... They started working together, and they got on very, very well. Uh, well enough that they went to the fair together in uh, mid-August. So I have a couple of uh, little things, some little events from the fair. It's mostly livestock, it seems like. That seems to be the big draw is the livestock and the exhibitions. It's not kind of all the, all the pizzazz and glamour that we think of with county fairs nowadays. <laughs> There's no deep-fried butter. Yeah. But um, they had a special ex exhibition of a steer, which is said to be the largest in the world, weighing close to 3,500 pounds. That could fill a freezer. And uh, there was some uh, effort being made to bring in a companion attraction of a giant horse, uh, which at three years of age weighs 3,000 pounds and stands six feet, eight inches tall. Okay, who's got the giant pig? <laughs> right? Come on, where's my big giant goat? And then uh, there was also a, uh, a baby contest. Yes, yes, we had a little baby contest. What did the babies have to do? I don't know, but they did get scores. <laughs> okay, so by the scores of the physicians making the examinations, yes, Vera Evelyn Anderson, 32 months old, 
uh, was declared grand champion baby girl at the Adams County Fair. And Jack Edwards Duncan, 26 months old, uh, I'm skipping past parents' names and stuff. Can we just say two? Was declared grand champion boy. This is the same newspaper where they break a, a, a toddler's life down into months days. and days. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why don't we just go to the minute, for God's sakes. Vera Evelyn Anderson scored 98.5 and Jack Duncan 97.4. There's no explanation. I want to know what they did. There's really no explanation. Did they pick the their favorite dinosaur? Did they uh, eat their vegetables? Oh, you're going to love the way that the presentation of the prizes was done, though. Okay, so immediately at 1 p.m., Dan Desdune's band played at the welcoming march, and then the awarding of prizes to the better babies, 40 in all, was begun. The announcement of the name, age, and address of each child was made over the loudspeakers. And at the first word, a hush spread through the throng as all listened instantly, I'm sorry, intently to hear the results. And all the pedophiles are writing down everything they said. Right. The mothers and prize winners were seated on the raised stage, and as the names were called, the babies were brought forward to receive their ribbons and awards from the hands of the Red Cross workers. Nobody has any idea why the Red Cross is involved in this. Why not? They did have a station there where you could literally check your baby with the Red Cross while you went to go around to exhibits. I wish they still did that. (laughs) That would be outstanding. Here, you take it. I'll be back later. Oh, man, I would love to pick up my kid, but I've lost my ticket. So, yeah, that's that's the kind of things that were at the fair. There were fireworks every night, though, and, you know, there was uh, soda pop, and, you know. They were very proud of the fact that there were water fountains. I guess there, there must have been a lot of complaints about thirstiness or something the previous year. We have soda pop and water. <laughs> we have soda pop and water. Come to the fair. So yes, they went to the fair. They were said to be, as I said earlier, drawn together as, quote, serious trouble had marred both their lives. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. But uh, as the newspaper put it, quote, both bore good reputations and there has at no time been any intimation that there was anything improper about their relations. Well, I mean, they're both single. Yeah, they're absolutely, they're, they're free. Yeah, she's divorced, he's widowed. They both lost a daughter at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they're going to be drawn together, if nothing else, just to lean on each other's shoulders and and become very good friends. And that led to other things because they're both decently young and attractive. And they're also, they, they found somebody who's decently young, attractive, and is the only person that they par- probably know who can understand what they're going through. Yeah. Like, to the letter. Yeah. <laughs> So, yes, but we are assured, assured by the newspapers that they had never been out until midnight together. Oh, it's nothing untoward. <laughs> nothing untoward can happen between the hours of 10 and midnight. Now, Hazel was a pretty popular girl. She had had dudes interested in her since the divorce, but it was never really reciprocal. Um, and sometimes seemed uh, there was some maybe creepiness or just... She didn't want some of these dudes to be interested in her. She did not want that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, so she sounds she sounds like a, an upstanding citizen, and she gets out of what is possibly an abusive relationship. She's lost a child. She has another child to worry about. She's working to keep a roof. Well, I mean, she's working to help support them yeah. because her husband won't, and by that being forced to spend, you know, weeks away from her child. Yeah. And the, the last thing she's going to do is prioritize dating some guy over her providing for her son and trying to spend as much time with her son as she can. Yeah, I think somebody had to be really special to, to actually catch her eye and be worth it for her. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think Clarence was or maybe would have been. Yeah. So it's August 23rd, 1925, a Sunday night. In the evening around 6.30, Hazel's household is eating dinner, and a phone call comes in. Now, Ella Pate heard Hazel's side of this phone call, and it's intriguing. Um, It seemed the caller had made Hazel guess his identity. Her first guess was Clarence. So, you know, he's playing the guess who game, and she says, uh, Clarence. And then Ella said... Quote, he must have at first said yes, but Mrs. Bird seemed to find it was not Clarence and asked again who it was. She then guessed it was Hank. Now, I don't know what response that got, but Hank was said to be a farmhand. Uh, he was a young man who gave her rides to and from school during the year um, because he was working around the farm where she was staying, where she was boarding during the, the you know school year. Um... So that might be Hank Miller. There's also a Floyd Miller who pops up later, and we'll see a little bit of him in um, in the second part of this because this is going to be a two-parter. I think we really wanted to give this the space to really... Get to know them. Get to know them, yeah, because they are such a unique and special couple, and I think for all that happened, I'm at least glad that they found each other for, you know as long as it lasted. So, um, so yeah, Hank Miller was probably the young man in question. Uh, as far as anyone knew, the last time Hazel had seen him had been about a month prior. He'd had an injury to his hand, and for some reason, Hazel accompanied him to the doctor's office. I don't know if she was with him when he was injured, if he called her, uh, if she offered, I have no idea. Um, but she did tell, uh, Dick Golgert, because both he, both Dick Golgert and Mrs. Dick Golgert were, uh, were good friends of hers. And it's really uh, fun when you say it fast, it sounds like you're kind of choking on it. Or it sounds like a really horrible flavor of, of yogurt in a, in a tube. <laughs> Dick Golgert. <laughs> um... But she said she hadn't seen him since then and was relieved he hadn't called upon her. And uh, I say no wonder, since apparently he tried to court her the year before and asked her to marry him within three weeks of meeting her. Wow, that's fast. Dude, come on. Don't jump like that. So the person who was on the phone then seemed to ask her on a date for the evening, but Hazel said she had another engagement. And Ella said that when Hazel got off the phone, she still seemed puzzled over who called her. She still wasn't 100% sure who it was. So, um, yeah. Clarence, meanwhile, was getting some hours in at work, going around town and getting bread orders from the local restaurants. Uh, I guess this was a, a usual Sunday thing. 
One of his stops was Queen's City Confectionery. He does kind of a cute thing here. Uh, he had gotten the order and walked out the door, and when he got to the door, he turned around, came back in, and at the spur of the moment, bought a box of chocolates. Which was super sweet. Very sweet, yes. Uh, and he's having an eventful day. At some point during his rounds there, he punctured a tire, had to take his car in to get it fixed. When he dropped the car off at the tire shop and picked it up, he was alone. Nothing seemed abnormal there. So later that evening is when things start to happen here. Um, we have kind of our usual setup of a couple goes out into the country in a car and does not return. Um, it's, it's, there's a weird thing that happens like before that, though. Um, from what I can gather, uh, Clarence and Hazel were in Clarence's car at some point after dinner. And they were coming into town from the east, and they came upon upon Lloyd Yeager, who is Clarence's brother, and his family. He has a, a wife and a couple of kids. Um, on the road around 9 p.m. or a little after. Now Lloyd's headlights were broken, and when they couldn't fix them, uh, they decided that the two cars would just drive side by side into town. Quote: The light from Clarence's car lighting the road for both, and the occupants of the car carried on a conversation. <laughs> You just imagine a little shouting back and forth over the sounds of the engines. So, yeah. Lloyd will later say that there was a coupe, and he thought maybe a Ford by the sound of it, following Clarence's car. Quote, It followed us from three quarters of a mile east of the Blaine elevator, clear to where I live, and where Clarence and Hazel Bird left me and my family. The car went along after Clarence's car. Now, that's about a distance of two miles from Lloyd's, if I have his address correct, which I think I do, to Hazel's parents. So yeah, it seems like this car is, is really tagging along because other people reported seeing a car following them at a few points, both before and after this. Uh, but people who saw them leave Hazel's said they saw a car pass Clarence's car and then just continue on past. But like I said, this journalist really struggles with timelines and geographical locations. There was a lot of clipping articles and highlighting and, and like navigation just trying to figure out where the hell this even happened. Yeah, yeah. So after all of this, with maybe a car following them, maybe not, Hazel and Clarence leave her parents' house, which is at 327 East 5th Street, for a car drive at 9 p.m. They don't say where they're going, but it was thought they were just taking their usual drive, which I think really speaks to something that they already have, like, their thing. Every night they go out for a drive. Now, it doesn't look like they were planning on being out late because she didn't even take her wrap. So, you know, if the temperatures get down, they should be coming home. Uh, but Ella heard a heavy footstep on the front porch later that night. That's Hazel's roommate. And around, it was around 11 p.m. She was actually too scared to get up and see who it was, but she said it sounded like the person had heavy boots on. She also got up at 1 a.m. and was surprised to find that Hazel wasn't home. She said Hazel never stayed out that late. She's never out past midnight. Never out past midnight. She turns into a pumpkin. So it was surprising when they didn't come home at all that night. And at 5 a.m., Mama Yeager is awake and anxious and creeping me out a little bit. 
So this is uh, what we find out. Premonition of danger or possible death to Clarence Yeager was expressed by his mother, Mrs. Philip Yeager, at about five o'clock this morning, according to her daughter, Mrs. Effie McCollum, who was among the first at the scene of the double tragedy. Mother said something has happened to Clarence when she arose early this morning, Mrs. McCollum said. Someone answered that they were going off to get married, but she replied that Clarence came to her in her dream, holding out his arms, saying, Mother, I am dying. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Effie was still, like, really trying to push the whole they're getting married thing. She said, I think they've gone away to be married. I hope they have, for they always seem happy together. Mm-hmm. Yes. Aww. Now, Papa Jaeger actually kind of knew, Clarence Sr. He knew something was wrong since around 7.30 a.m., which, if you think about it, the Baker life. Yeah, you're you're up it's before an, that usually. Oh, far before that. Yeah, it's you're awake when everybody else is asleep, and he he knows Clarence, and I'm pretty sure Clarence is a good worker. Clarence wouldn't just split without you know any sort of explanation or something like that. So it would not be until mid morning that they found out was it death, was it marriage, and that's when a delivery man for Hastings Dairy named Russell Miller was driving towards town with a load of watermelons to sell at the market, he saw a car on the side of the road. So he was, I guess, an enterprising fellow, and he was starting to pull over to see if he could sell them some melons. This man is a capitalist dream. But as he was nearing the car, another vehicle, a Ford Coupe, passed him. He said the driver was wearing a wide sombrero hat. That seems out of place. That seems out of place for Nebraska in 1925. Yeah. A little strange, but okay. So that car headed on down the road, but Miller looked into the car that was on the side of the road, and he saw the bodies of two people and immediately turned around and raced to the nearest farm to call the police. The police arrived, and there were still some other vehicles on the road. This this road is supposedly not well-traveled, but it's, it's surprising how many vehicle reports we have that there was a, a car and a horse-drawn cart that passed by while everybody was waiting for the coroner. It seemed like these just went on. Nobody was trying to rubberneck or anything. Um, and after that, they closed the road to the public and barred spectators from the investigation scene. Finally. <laughs> oh, if I had an air horn, I'd blow it. God. <laughs> Trust me crazy. So let's talk about the scene. Because there was some interesting stuff there. There's some weird stuff There's there. some weird stuff. So my best guess for where this is located for all you Hastingites... Hastingers? Hastingonians. Hastingonians. I don't know. Hastingers sounds more like violent. I like it. Hastingers. So let's talk about the scene here because there are a lot of really intriguing details what they found on the scene. So the best guess of where it would be if, uh, again, you're a Hastingtonian, Hastinger, uh, North Showboat Boulevard just past the train tracks is about where I was able to triangulate it. The uh, newspaper says, the road on which the car was standing is a well-defined road, though it is not as frequently traveled as main roads. 
The sides of the road are overgrown with grass. The car stood 65 paces north of the Burlington track, and close inspection of the ground disclosed no indications of a struggle or that the car had been moved. Now, what they found around the car, they did a thorough search of the fields nearby, and they found an overcoat um, about 65 yards northeast of the car in a cornfield. They also found an embroidered handkerchief near to the car, uh, about 30 yards away, and a blood-soaked cap underneath the car. They also found three footprints near the coat, and measurements of those footprints matched those of the shoes that Hazel had been wearing, so it seems like she was up and out of the car at some point. The handkerchief was found nearby. I do believe that that was an actual bloody handkerchief, not just embroidered. Um, between the footprints and uh, the, you know, as they put it, the death car. The death car. The they de always call it the death car. They always call it the death car. That's no moon. It's a space station. Get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry. There's also a crimson puddle about 25 feet behind the car. And so this is kind of the first indication that they have, the footprints, the puddle, that Hazel may not have been shot while actually in the vehicle. Quote, this lends itself to the theory that Mrs. Bird may have jumped from the car and ran when Jaeger was attacked, and that she was later shot, possibly where the crimson puddle was found, about 25 feet back of the car, and then her body carried and jammed down beside the body of Clarence Jaeger because that's what they found uh, in the car. Quote, Jaeger's body was wedged between the two front seats with his head to the south and his face downward. His right arm was underneath him and his left arm was turned back over his side. The woman's body was huddled down in the front left seat with her head lying upon the man's left leg and held upward as it wedged against the brake rod. Her right foot touched the top of the front door, and her left foot was bent underneath her. Her clothes were disheveled. So, this definitely, uh, it's, it feels a little, it's inching towards posed. Almost, yeah. Yeah, it's not quite there, because you definitely get the feeling, there's also a cushion that was taken out and, like, put on top of them, kind of, to hide them, but so you get the feeling that this is more of an attempt to hide the bodies for a little while. Try to get them bent over, put the cushion on top, so it looks like it's just a broken down car. Exactly. Yeah, but there's definitely there's that little element of posing in there that it feels like something is escalating. And uh, they they judged that they'd been dead for several hours uh, when their bodies were found by Russell Miller. Hazel's clothes were disarranged. And so that did, you know, raise the question, given the location and positioning of her body, of, you know, what ex how exactly did it all go down here? And what exactly went down here? They were both shot on the left side again with a thirty-eight caliber. So here we are again with the thirty-eight calibers. Uh, the newspaper says a thirty-eight caliber bullet entered Clarence Yeager's head on the left side near the cheekbone, and was found below the right ear, just under the skin. Mrs. Bird was shot twice. One bullet entered the head on the left side at the edge of the temple, about an inch below, uh, sorry, about an inch above the eye. The second bullet struck Mrs. Bird on the lower jaw, and the spot on the right side is judged to be a powder burn. So also, again, we have shooting from the left side. 
So we're, we're getting those similarities, although, you know, it might just be the natural thing if you're approaching a car with two people in it. Driver. You, yeah, you go for the driver. You also go for the one that you know is going to be a bigger challenge, which generally is a guy, you yeah. know, if it's a guy and a girl. So you just, you go for the bigger target. So there was no gun found on the scene yet. And then as for whether it was a robbery, it was kind of... Uh, iffy. Yeah, really iffy. Uh, it was found that one of Jaeger's trouser pockets was torn away and no trace of it can be found. No pocketbook has been found and P.W. Jaeger, father of the murdered man, says he always carried some money, usually small bills. That looks like robbery. On the other hand, Mr. Jaeger's diamond set shrine ring and Mrs. Bird's diamond ring were left on the bodies, as were the watches of the two victims. Mm-hmm. So that pocket maybe could have been torn away when he was ar arranging the bodies? Maybe? Maybe he legit did take the pocketbook to make it look like a robbery, but it still doesn't look like a robbery when you're leaving diamond rings behind and watches and other valuables. You only take small bills. Yeah, that's really strange. But then it seems staged to me. And the other thing is, it's not the pocketbook. It's the pocket. Like literally the whole pocket. But the pocketbook was also missing. Yeah. Well, no pocketbook had been found. Yeah. Um, they're you're not, you're I don't, not going I don't on think... a date without a look. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're going to have a little money so you can stop for some barbecue. Or some soda <laughs> pop. Or some... Not milk, though. Not milk. <laughs> not milk. That's only what you do after murders. They also found the box of chocolates in the car in the back seat and uh, to describe the way that the bodies were hidden uh, sort of hidden actually I want to point out that one of the newspapers I, I got a lot of information from had a tendency to put headings over different sections of an article which can be really good and it can be sort of a guide through the story if done properly if not done properly it can be very jarring like when you have the headline, thought to sell melons. <laughs> and then beneath that, a seat cushion was over Jaeger's body and was held in place by the steering wheel and the back of the front seat. This would partially obscure the view of persons passing on the west side of the car. So they just needed to fine tune their placement of their headings a little bit because like that was really jarring. Like thought yeah. to sell melons and then, yeah, no, let's, let's put that where it belongs, please. So the article announcing their death does mention that each has a surviving child. Uh, Clarence has Virginia, who is uh, six? Nine. Nine? Yeah, we're going to go with nine. And uh, Hazel has Robert, who is two. And then ends rather abruptly with a description of Clarence's wife's suicide. I thought that the article would be continued elsewhere, and it just wasn't. No, just that. Yeah. <laughs> It does summarize how Clarence and Hazel had been spending time together and were thought to be courting, but emphasizes their, their good reputations, of course. They were good kids. So that overcoat that was found on the scene, about 65 yards away from the car, the death car, uh, we need to talk about that overcoat because it takes us to some really interesting places. It does, doesn't it? Holy shit. So... Clarence's family members are adamant that this is not Clarence's coat. The initial articles about the murder scene said the coat was thought to be the dead man's, but they fixed that really quickly when, like, his brother and his dad were both like, that is not his coat. Not at all. That's not his style. Yeah. So they start looking into it. 
whose coat is this? And they actually are able to figure it out. It belongs to the victim of a recent robbery in the area. That is Farmer Bentley Brown. That sounds like a farmer. Well, his first name is actually Myron. I was tracking him down a little bit. Because he lives either 4.5 or 7 miles northeast of the town. Um, according to the different newspapers. He had his house robbed the night before the murder. Really strange stuff that they took, too, in that robbery. Some strange stuff. Yeah, what do you have? Two overcoats, some jewelry, and a traveling bag. Yeah. There was, uh, they, they took a watch, an oversized gold watch. So that's interesting, since the watches were overlooked with Clarence and Hazel. Um, the two overcoats, the other one was a gray one, and then the one that was left at the scene or was dropped or... Uh, Whatever. The wind Covered blew in blood. it there. Um, it was brown. Yeah, a black traveling bag. Mr. and Mrs. Brown both positively identify the coat as Mr. Brown's. Uh, entry was gained to the house by removing a screen. Mr. Brown had left home around 8 that night going to Hastings, and he had seen a man on horseback traveling in the opposite direction, sort of like close to his house, so it stuck in his head a little bit. When he got home and discovered the robbery, he looked around and he found a horseshoe print at the entrance to his yard. And they really don't elaborate on this next part, and I wish they did. He traced the hoof prints east, south of Harvard, as far as Grafton. That's 41 miles from Hastings. So I didn't know what to think or whether to believe that. But, and well, this is why I was looking up Myron Bentley Brown, because I was really trying to find where he actually lived. Um, if I have the murder scene and the location of the farm right, he lived eight miles north of the murder scene. If he is following the tracks, the thief would go right down past the murder scene location. Oh, wow. Could have tossed or lost the overcoat there. Maybe just some brown's not their color. You know, um, it's last season's overcoat. Uh, <laughs> they thought that it was, you know, a, a major label, but it's actually, you know, a Versace um. <laughs> so my immediate thought was you need two coats, one for warmth and one for murder. So if you're going to do crimes, you need to get rid of whatever clothes you're wearing immediately because you're going to have evidence on it, mm -hmm. like gunpowder or blood. And also, if anybody would see you, now they're looking for a man in a brown overcoat. True, yeah. So you get, what was it, 65 yards out. And then you ditch that coat, you change to the other coat, and now you're not the same person that did that. The only thing is, that yes, the brown coat was left at the murder scene. I'm not aware of any blood that was seen on it. And I don't think, as far as I'm aware, that they found out any evidence on it. I don't know. Well, there, and you know what, though? Back then, maybe they didn't really check it. Maybe it was a very dark oh, color. You couldn't tell. Maybe, but they were they were checking lots of things. They actually did some some... Semi-decent forensics in this case, here and there. Here and there. Here and there. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's one of those things where you find out that there's, there's two very plausible answers, and you really want it to be the one that fits with your pet theory. <laughs> 
but I don't know. It could go either way, honestly. It could have been dropped. The overcoat could have been dropped. Maybe the guy tossed it over the side of his horse, you know, and the overcoat just fell off as he was riding. We don't know. Um, but this was not uh, an isolated incident. This was the fourth robbery of farm homes reported within that past week, according to the newspapers, and I was able to get it going back even further than that. So right below the write-up of that robbery of the Bentley Brown house is one of an attempted robbery at a filling station in town, less than a mile from Hazel's parents' house. Quote, discovery of an open window which had been raised by a jimmy. It is believed that the robbers were after, after money since nothing was missed from the oil station and the cash register was emptied last night at the closing hour. All right, so there's an attempted one there. And let's talk about uh, going further back here. August 1st or 2nd, dental offices are hit. Uh, three of them, I think. Um, teeth, plate, and bridges are stolen. I'm sorry, two of them. Uh, at 214 North Hastings Avenue, which is about a three-minute walk from that filling station, and uh, from another dentist's office about a 10-minute walk from there. Again, a jimmy was used to pry windows or doors at each location. Um, they did not go after any narcotics. There were small amounts of narcotics in both of the offices. They were left untouched. <laughs> this is funny to me. Police suspected experts since they closed and latched the doors and windows behind them. So apparently only expert thieves have good manners these days. Well, yeah, I mean, if, <laughs> if you're thieving, a lot of people would just not care how they leave it. But whoever these guys are don't want it to be noticed. Yeah, yeah. You want at least as, as much time as possible between committing the crime and the crime actually being found out. So, yeah, it, it does make sense, but it's funny to me. That they're, like, they're like, they closed and latched the doors. So August 16th, uh, one week... Prior to the murders exactly, there were two homes burglarized on Sunday afternoon and night. Sometime between 4 and 11 p.m., police were able to gather. Stolen were an overcoat, two shirts, and a clock from one house, and a leather traveling bag taken from the second house. Police suspected that at least as far as these two robberies were concerned, it was the same person or persons responsible. Overcoats. Leather traveling bags. We have a thing for overcoats and leather traveling bags. Um, these robberies. One of them was 230 feet from Hazel Bird's parents' front door. Yep. The other one was 60 feet. Now, I'm kind of guessing on, like, locations of houses because these house numbers aren't necessarily there now. <laughs> yeah. So... But it, it's definitely, like, the numbers are all very close together. Yes. <laughs> of, yes. The, of the house numbers. And it seriously looks like it, it was right around her. Like, literally her neighbors. Finding that out was... Uh, I, I was just knocked out of my seat. <laughs> like, yeah, it, That's it, messed up. <laughs> well, between, between this and then the, the Ford Coupe that keeps getting seen and things like that... It really makes it feel like Hazel, who was, again, very popular, and then that awkward phone call, it feels like she had a stalker. It does. It really does. And it makes me think that the, the, the traveling bags, obviously, just to store things, but the overcoats, maybe just for, like, disguises, you can just keep changing your, your overcoat, changing your hat. But it is and August. 
it is August, which doesn't make sense, but... We might not be dealing with a mind that makes sense, especially where this is concerned. Yeah, well, and especially if it's, like, kind of a vagrant. Like, who needs that many traveling bags? Where are you going? Well, so think of it like a, a vagrant. And so maybe they're taking the overcoats because they work well as blankets. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. And you can't always, like, if you have to, to leave very quickly so nobody sees you, you might leave stuff behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of her, uh, one of her dudes that kind of liked her, the farmhand guy, we'll get into him in the next uh, episode about this, but he, he did seem to have some trouble keeping his farmhand work and finding work when it was harvest time which is coming up here, um, and probably, like, you know, also happening at the same time, August 25th. Yeah. And uh, so, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, we'll get into that. We'll dig in. We'll find out what we can. So, yeah, that was just shocking. And then on August 20th, so three days before the murders, between 7 and 9 p.m., there were two robberies of farm homes in Denver Township, which is, like, seven-ish miles southwest of Hastings. Window screens were cut at both, and the phone line disconnected at one house. Stolen were phonograph records, two rings, two earrings, two blankets from one home, and from another home, just an overcoat. <laughs> the overcoats again. There's something the with these overcoats. There's something with the overcoats, and I cannot figure out. Like, your idea, it makes some sense, but have you, you know when you're traveling, okay, and you're traveling in the winter? Mm-hmm. And you're carrying your coat through, like, the airport or whatever. Mm -hmm. Don't you hate that? Your arm gets all sweaty. And then, like, you're, you're, you know, if you have a bag hanging on your arm. That's like, why you steal the bag. So you can put the overcoat in it. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, maybe they overcoats. couldn't find a bag at the one house. So they took blankets instead. They can wrap everything up in a bundle. Yeah. Now, just below that. They could take all these bundles and bury them in holes. Oh, no. And then drink some milk. <laughs> and then drink some milk, and they've got little go bags scattered throughout. Ha-ha! <laughs> Dutch rides again! Right? <laughs> so just below that write-up is a paragraph about a suspect in these robberies. Keep in mind, we're still before the murder here as far as what's being reported. Police were searching today for a heavy man who is thought to have been prowling around the east part of the city last night. A man of this description called at two homes and was met on the porch in each instance by a member of the household. He asked about persons living within two blocks from where he stopped. Later in the evening, several complaints were made to the police department that a man was seen prowling around and seemed to be looking over the homes very carefully. Police say this, may, this person may be connected with two robberies which have been committed in the neighborhood this week. Uh, if I am correct, she was on the east side of the city. Her, her family, I think it would qualify where her family lived as the east side of the city. Um, and so, yeah, they're looking for him. And pretty much all the robberies, except for the farmhouses, were on the eastern side of the city. So it is very, you know, targeted location-wise, if it is the same people. So then on the 21st, around 9 p.m., south of the city, two houses had their screens taken off, and stolen from them were watches, a shotgun, a checkbook, a small amount of money, several dozen eggs, and some jars of fruit. Hmm. Hungry. Yeah, hungry. Um, a lot of uh, speculation that maybe it was, you know, quote-unquote, hobos, tramps, all the words they had, you know, back then. And uh, so the one farmer and his son who were robbed, they were home and going to bed. 
and they heard noises. They thought some other members of the household were coming home. They called out and they got no response. Scary. And then the son went looking for his shotgun and found it missing. Oh. They did see someone running across the road. It, it's not specified. It does seem to indicate one person in the paper because it's not plural. Or it just says someone. I would think they would be specific if it was more than one person. Police definitely blamed um, Hungry Hungry Hobos. So <laughs> The newest board game. <laughs> From Mattel. Um, so then there was a brown robbery on the 22nd. We've got a real robbery spree going on here. And the murders on the 23rd. You're on my case for locking my doors. Because <laughs> I always lock my sliding door. And she was like, oh, we're going outside. And she's like, you always lock your door. I'm literally bathing in this stuff. <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> Writing about people with screens cut open and telephone lines cut and people stealing their guns. <laughs> Christy and I are very different because she's afraid of somebody breaking into her house. And I, I, uh. You would welcome it. I mean, I would get to commit a crime and it would be... Uh, Almost definitely you would walk. Yeah, they broke in. Well, it's, the, it's the perfect opportunity for uh, the perfect not a crime, <laughs> apparently. So It would be like the purge. It almost is like the purge in this town, honestly. With all these, I mean, I know it's, it's a lot smaller than that. But with all of these robberies going on, it's nuts. They're so compressed in that span of time. There was really nothing before that in the months prior. I looked at June and July, I think, if I remember correctly. And there was nothing really exciting as far as robberies were concerned. And after that, nothing really until September 9th. So like two weeks go by and it's quiet. Yeah, August makes everybody crazy. I was born in August. It is a crazy month for crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> so... And that robbery on September 9th, that was an interesting one. It was an attempted, I think, uh, because a woman was watching her neighbor's home while they were away and caught a robber in the act. The window screen had been removed. The window was up. The robber was in the house. And he was observed escaping by two neighborhood, I don't know if they were boys or men. They gave their names. They didn't give ages. Not that it would matter because they would be inaccurate. And they referred to them as just alternately boys and men. <laughs> Make up your minds. 16. <laughs> 16, sure. They did chase him uh, about three blocks. Yeah, that's a teenager. That is a, for <laughs> sure a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> Where he got in a car at the corner, and this wording in the paper was interesting, was driven away. Oh, make it getaway like, driver. Yeah. So they did get a good look at him. They said he was young and well-dressed. Hmm. Nice overcoat. <laughs> Good question. Nice shiny watch anywhere? Maybe some ruby earrings? I don't know. So the next day, after the, after the murders, in the papers, it's noted that uh, there may be some connection between the several robberies committed in this vicinity in the week of August 17th to 23rd and the double murder. It has been noted that robberies in the country have ceased since the murder, but were almost a nightly occurrence before that time. And I'm like, yeah. But they never mentioned the ones that are right by Hazel's parents' house where she lives. Mm -hmm. That was weird to me. I mean, they mentioned them in the paper when they happened the week prior. But they never point out in all these articles where they're like, oh, maybe these robberies are connected. That two of them happened next door to one of the victims. Mm -hmm. Like, that's another reason why it floored me so much. Because I was like, why the hell isn't this in the articles? 
That is a detail that you don't just walk away from. They might not have put it together at the time. I don't think they did, honestly. <sighs> so, so yeah, the town is pretty freaked out by everything. It's, it's understandable. There's burglaries, there's murders, and you have the usual jumpiness leading to the usual sort of understandable overreactions and rumors. So rumors in connection with the double killing of Clarence Yeager and Mrs. Hazel Bird have kept the town buzzing during the past three days. Yesterday afternoon, a report that another ban- man had been found dead out in West Lawn, adi- West Lawn Edition, <laughs> spread like wildfire along 2nd Street. Investigation proved that while there was some reason for the starting of the story, the man was very much alive. He had been taken suddenly ill in his car and for a time was unconscious, but he recovered rapidly and was soon able to be moved to his home. There's some... There's some freaking out. And uh, we're going to wind this down uh, and, and come back and talk about the investigation and persons of interest and those forensics that I mentioned, which, like I said, are, are not anywhere near as impressive as, you know, like nowadays. So don't get your hopes up too high. But like, where is Lawrence Bird? Where is her ex-husband? That's going to be an ongoing question throughout this investigation. They don't find him immediately. What about other suitors, that farmhand, some other names that get floated around? Somewhere, there's the Sniper of Omaha, who apparently, his name is floated as, a, you know, a potential suspect for a little while. Uh, our mystery caller. Our mystery caller, yes. There's the mystery caller. So, like, these he are all things... He wanted to take her out that night. He did. And these are all things that they need to figure out. Um, one thing I want to end with, actually, is that... One of the delights of doing this, and I know I just said that about a murder podcast, but one of the delights of doing this is getting to find the weirdest little things that must have been such a like funny little quirk for hometown people to talk about. For instance, in the town of Hastings, Nebraska, in the 1920s, there was a funeral home, Livingston Brothers Funeral Home. They always had their ads placed very particularly. There was a column, usually around page seven or so in the Hastings Daily Tribune, where it would be just local happenings. And that's actually where I found a lot of those things about the the robberies. They're on page seven. Like, no wonder nobody's freaking putting this together. It's only showing up in what is essentially almost a police blotter slash gossip column slash society news. So, yeah. But these, the Livingston Brothers Funeral Home would always have their ad placed underneath that column in a little... Uh, decorated frame and it always says something different the week of the Clarence Yeager and Hazel Bird murder it said murder will out the old 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 story and we hope the hard-hearted murderer of two innocent people murdered Saturday night will be worried till confession will be the only relief Livingston Brothers Funeral Home (laughs) and this is every day and they are I don't know what's happening with these I don't know what is there something in the water at this point in time? Are I they all like licking is, arsenic? D- do you know when they do like the sign wars with like Wendy's and stuff? Yeah. I feel like this is before they had signs. They could put whatever the hell they wanted on. Somebody's like newspaper ads. That's what we're doing. Every day is going to be different. Honestly, these are like tweets from like 90 years before Twitter was a thing. Trailblazing. So uh, this is, okay. A man, I I gathered a few of these for our entertainment, and I will gather more for next time. A man that tells girls that he is single when he is not is going to have something to fix up at home. 
You may think you can get away with it, but you can't. The fellow that steals fine instruments, razor blades, and razors from a morgue is not going to use them on himself. A double life will not succeed in business. Livingston Brothers Funeral Home, phone number 235. What? Are these, are these pointed messages at people? Are these like kind of like almost like horoscopes about the people in town? Like little gossip column mentions, not horoscopes, but little gossip column mentions. Maybe know. dead people gossip columns. And all, what's with the stealing fine instruments, razor blades, and razors from the morgue? Were they robbed too? Maybe. I'm starting to think they were robbed. <laughs> like, this is getting a little weird. And maybe they just figured it was an inside job, so they didn't tell it. I don't know. They didn't report it? I bet they were robbed, and since it was only razors, the cops were like, we're not doing anything with that. Like, I tried to figure out if they were using that as a metaphor for something. I don't think it was a metaphor. But yeah, it doesn't match up with anything else. All right, so here's another one. It takes 100 years till a young man gets to the age of 21. But from that time on, it takes 21 years till he is 100 years old. This is life looking backwards as someone that has nearly had the experience tells us. The oldest person that Livingston Brothers ever buried was 108 years old. Uh, <laughs> they had good drugs. They did. They did. Uh, one final one for you uh, where we get into monkeys and I, stuff. I think that they're just inhaling way too much formaldehyde. I had a whole joke about embalming fluid and I should have done it sooner because you snuck in there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. You're just faster than I am. If there is anything in evolution, us monkeys will develop eyes for the back of our heads so we can dodge the automobiles when we try to cross the street. The old time monkey was just made to dodge coconuts. Livingston brothers say that kind would not last long on the streets today. It takes more than a coconut dodger to beat the automobile driver up today. Coconut dodger? Did I say coconut driver? <laughs> I think I did. Takes more than a coconut dodger to beat the automobile driver of today. What are they on? I know, right? <laughs> I can't. They're they're priceless. They're absolutely wonderful. They make me so happy, and I I don't know why because they're so off the wall. But I honestly feel like every single one of these that they wrote. There is someone in town that is not them that understands it. I feel like that. At least, at least, maybe not every single one, but the one about the man with the double life. No, they're, they're giving a sermon and they're looking directly in the eyes of the per person they're preaching to. Yeah, there's at least one person in town on every notice that's like, fuck it, they're on to me. <laughs> yeah, they know. The funeral home knows. <laughs> I want to know who has the monkey and the coconuts. Yeah. <laughs> Or was it like they just almost got hit by a car and it was like a, a, a ding against the bad driver or something? Like that must be it, yeah. Yeah, they were very, naturally, uh, very focused on automobile uh, deaths and, and injuries back then because it was a lot and it was kind of a new thing. So, yeah, I will, I will return. We will return in two weeks with some information on Lawrence Bird, where this investigation went, what's the deal with the farmhand, and more deep thoughts from the Livingston Funeral Home. <laughs> Livingston Brothers. Livingston Funeral Home. Livingston. Livingston. So, yeah, don't forget about the Patreon. Come over and check out our social media. I'm on and off with postings. I, I, I just sometimes kind of go in little 
spurts, I don't know, when I get all, like, deep into the old-timey newspapers, and I'll post a whole bunch of that stuff. So, uh, it's not just, you know, advertising. I put up all kinds of fun stuff when I feel like it. Um, so come on over. Instagram, uh, Twitter. I haven't done this in a really long time. Uh, Facebook. Those are the three. Yes. <laughs> and check us out there. And there's all kinds of links in the show notes for other ways you can support us. Uh, so in including single donations via PayPal, oldtimeycrimey at paypal.com. If you just want to send us some money just because um, you love us. You think we're pretty. <laughs> you can also send us books. Yes, we have an Amazon wish list that is available in those very same uh, links. And we've had uh, some of our fans and friends of the show send us books before. It's always a delight. It's such a wonderful surprise. <laughs> yeah, and, and we've done quite a few cases based on the books that we were sent. Yeah, we will, we will use the cases to, or the books for, for cases. Absolutely. It's not just, you know, to put murder books on my coffee table. Yeah, it's, it's, so <laughs> Although you... that is part of it. <laughs> it and well, and you can also control us in a way by doing that. Because if you send it... We will feel obligated to do the case that you want us to do. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so now you know how to control us. Buy us books. That should have been obvious a long time ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. From us here uh, at Old Timey Crummy, we hope you are enjoying this Lover's Lane series. And we can't wait to come back in two weeks with more of the Hastings, Nebraska uh, episode of the Lover's Lane Murders. So, uh, don't drink the embalming fluid, first of all. Or do, because... Apparently, it makes you wacky and fun. It's, it's entertainment, it's for sure. Some, we're enjoying it. If you want to be a cautionary tale for our enjoyment, that's, that's on you. I mean, we can't stop you. Um, don't wear eight overcoats in August. There you go. And don't forget to set your parking brake. Bye. Bye. Need a cough? No, I thought I was going to sneeze. I still might. (laughs) Okay. I'm trying not to. There's a tickle. There's a tickle. (laughs) There's a tickle. I don't know. I might be okay. Okay. (laughs) You want to give me a clap so I can make sure I catch that? (laughs) No, let's just leave that in. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So.